Test, test, test. Well, as we jump into the text this morning, I encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 7. So as you turn there, by way of announcement this morning, um, we, we should have gotten out to you by now um, the membership classes if you are interested in pursuing becoming a member here. So I know there's a few of you that have already talked with us about this, but if you haven't gotten in touch with us yet, please reach out to me. I would love to share those videos with you so that you can participate and become a member of Mercygate Church. Um, aside from that, um, be on the lookout just for some, some new information as we come into 2021 um, regarding budget and um, just some, some changes to our statement of faith that we're going to bring before you. And I know that sounds major. Uh, it's an exciting change to our statement of faith. Um, so we have to go through the process of bringing before you what those changes are and um, so that we are having those things affirmed by our church. But this is exciting news. Our, our denomination has completed a brand new statement of faith. And um, it's, it's really good. It's exciting. It's really rich. And so those things and a few others, we're going to be bringing some information about the new year before you. So be on the lookout for emails regarding those, and um, we'll, we'll be in touch with those things, about those things with you. Um, as we begin, I'd like to spend some time praying, and just two points of prayer this morning that I would encourage you to pray with me. We're going to be praying for families uh, as we continue to go through the holiday season with New Year's approaching. Um, we're going to be lifting up families and just there's lots of different dynamics and um, challenges and issues that families are facing. So we're going to be praying for your family and for other families. So pray with me for that. Um, and then we're going to be praying just that as a church, as we roll into to a new year, into 2021, um, as Dan and I were talking, that that we would not be so excited to leave behind the frustrations of 2020 that if and when frustrations arise in the new year, um, that it would derail us. But rather, we're going to be praying that as a church, as Christians, that whatever may come this year, things might get worse for all we know. Um, hopefully not, but it might. Um, so just our prayer is that as a church, we would continue to press into the Lord and to be faithful. So would you guys pray with me as we begin this morning? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this wonderful Advent season that we've been able to come through and the celebration of your birth that we have experienced this past week. Lord, we praise you for the gift of the gospel of your life that you've given to us and the promise of eternal fellowship with you. Jesus, we exalt your name for accomplishing that for us and extending it to us. Lord, I want to lift up the families of our church, the individual families of the, the people who are listening right now. I, I lift them up before you, Lord, as we continue to go through a time where families are gathering and celebrating and socializing. Oh, there are so many challenges that arise in those moments. 
And so, Lord, my prayer for the families of our church and those around us is that the challenges would be met with faithful witness of Christ. Lord, I pray that where there is discord, where there is division, where there is frustration, that you would bring restoration to those family moments, that you would redeem whole families, that you would transform families. Lord, I pray for even those who are estranged from their families during this time, that you would bring that miraculous homecoming, the prodigals coming home, Lord. That's our prayer. We want to see families unified and strengthened in the beauty of your gospel. Lord, I also think of those who have lost family members during this time. I lift them up before you, those who are grieving, those who are lonely, those who are feeling the burdens all by themselves. Jesus, I pray that you would meet them, that you would draw near to them during this season as we come into a new year, Lord, that you would strengthen them and uphold them, that you would hold up their weary heads. Lord, we trust in you to do this transforming work, and so that's my prayer for the families of our church, is that you would, that you would carry these families, that they would cling to you, Lord, I also pray for our church that as we come into a new year that we would not just shake off everything that was behind us, but that we would take the lessons learned, take the sanctification that has happened, the, the faith-building moments that we've walked through this past year, that we would continue on that path, Lord, that we would continue being faithful, that we would patiently endure whatever may come this year. We do hope and we trust and we long for better moments this year. We ask you for that, Lord. We even boldly ask that, that 2021 would be something of a, a year of sweet rest and surprising blessing. But Lord, we also know that challenges will be faced. And so my prayer is that we would walk through those times faithfully, representing you well, as we'll see in our text today. So, Lord, would you strengthen our church? Would you, again, I ask that you would unify our church and draw us closer to you. Help us to be a fruitful people that is obedient to you, that is a bold witness for you, that is effective for you in your kingdom, Lord, for your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about a year ago, back when we were allowed to still do things in public with other people, my dad wanted to take Isaac to a monster truck showcase. And so we went to the showcase and there's all these games and different things happening, a lot of people there. And then the climax of the event is this monster truck would come out and smash some cars. This is like the beautiful, uh, glorious American moment where fuel is being burned, flames are flying, smoke is blowing, metals being smashed. Except whoever organized this event decided that they were going to use the first all-electric monster truck. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a monster truck rally, but the whole thing is based upon the loudness, the power, the noise, the smell of the exhaust, the dirt flying. So to have an electric monster truck is almost, if I could use the word sacrilegious, it kind of defeats the purpose. 
So we went, we watched the show, and you couldn't even tell when it was about to begin because you didn't hear the engine start. And people gather around, and here comes this monster truck rolling into the course, and it sounded almost like a Prius. It was almost silent, and it was very strange. So they began driving around, and he drove over some cars, and before long, he smashed a car and got stuck on top of the car, and he was trying really hard to go forward and to go backward. But to be honest, the electric engine in this monster truck just didn't have enough power. He could not get off that little car that he was trying to smash. And I was actually embarrassed for the driver because all these people are gathered around to watch this display of power. And the truck was stuck. And they actually had to bring a tow truck out and tow the truck off the car. It was a little disappointing, to be honest with you. My point is that when it comes to power, in most areas of life, it seems that more power is good and less power is bad. We love power. Isn't that right? We love power. We think of power as being the key to success and effectiveness and achievement. But the kingdom of God is different. The things that seem to make sense to us in our finite minds in a fallen world are usually not how God operates in his kingdom. As we'll see in the text today in Revelation 3, the church in Philadelphia had only a little power. Crouched in the shadows of paganism and Judaism, the church seemed to have little spiritual influence. In the bustling epicenter of Greek culture, a culture of holiness and godliness seemed to have no relevance. But the letter to Philadelphia reveals that Jesus didn't see this powerless church as ineffective. He didn't see those people as useless. What he saw was a church that was faithful and dependent, and in that he saw a group of people who were usable. They weren't useless, they were usable. So as I've spent the time mulling over this text and thinking how it specifically applies to Mercy Gate Church, I've come to the conclusion that in many ways our church is in that same situation. I've had a number of conversations in the past week or two that have amplified this point in my mind. Our, our city is a city that's oppressed by violence, addiction, poverty, corruption, and here we are tucked away in the corner of all that. We live in a culture that is opposed to biblical values. They celebrate immorality. Quite frankly, they don't want to hear what we have to say. We're ruled by leaders who most people don't trust. It feels like our church in this culture has no power. And even in the church world, you know, there's a list, there's a, a website called Outreach 100, and they give you a, a billboard of the top 100 churches in the U.S. that are the fastest growing, the largest, and the most reproducing. And I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. Mercy Gate Church is not on any of those lists. <laughs> Even in the church world, it feels like our church is powerless. We're just a little church. 
But the point of the words in this letter to the church of Philadelphia is that to be powerless in the kingdom of God is to be usable. But there's a condition. If and only if your lack of power results in faithful, enduring witness for Christ that flows from dependence upon his power and his authority. In other words, and this is the, the big idea for today, that if you represent Christ faithfully, though you lack power, he will use you to accomplish his all-powerful, undefeatable plan. Let's read through the text together. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'd like to begin in the same way that this letter begins, by simply declaring the all-surpassing power and sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. The key to the encouragement in this letter is believing this, trusting in this, and declaring this very truth. And to be honest with you, the point that I'm about to say often feels like I'm just stating the obvious when it's said among Christians. Please don't receive this statement as merely the obvious. As Dan said last week, let's not lose the wonder. Receive this simple statement as earth-shattering, heart-stirring, rock-solid truth that revives your soul and wells up a spring of worship. Are you ready? Here's point number one. Jesus is the all-powerful, undefeatable king. He's the all-powerful, undefeatable king. Just as we've seen in the other letters, Jesus introduces himself to the church using names and descriptions that are loaded with theological importance and meaning. His identity is the source and the guarantee for the encouragement or the warning that he gives to each church. So let's take a few minutes to begin by unpacking the titles that Jesus uses to identify himself in verse 7. The first thing that he says is the Holy One. 
at surface level, the term holy speaks to Jesus' distinctness from us, his separateness, his transcendence above us, his uprightness. Jesus is holy. But a deeper dive into scripture reveals that this particular inscription, the Holy One, is much more than that. This is a name that is reserved for Yahweh alone. Throughout the Old Testament, writers use this name to speak of God, predominantly Isaiah. And this name speaks to God's all-powerful authority. The Holy One declares God's ultimate, undefeatable authority over all things. Jesus isn't just holy. He's the Holy One of Israel, the Most High God, who rules, protects, and empowers. But he's also the true one. Not only are his words true and his character honest, but he is who he says he is. This means that he's trustworthy and faithful, he's dependable and reliable, and his character defines what is real and what is right. He is the true one. When he declares that he is God and he is Messiah, that word stands, despite any lie of the enemy that says otherwise. Jesus isn't just the Holy One of Israel. He's really the Holy One of Israel, God himself, all-powerful, undefeatable. As if that description alone isn't enough, he goes on. He says that he's the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. On one hand, this title refers back to Revelation 1.18, where he says, I have the key to death in Hades. Because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, Jesus alone has the key to release sinners from death and ultimately hell. But there's more packed into this, the key of David. It's actually a reference back to an obscure prophecy in Isaiah 22. How many of you guys know of Eliakim and Shebna? I will give you a prize if you know who they are. Quite frankly, most people don't know about these guys, but here Jesus is saying, I have the key of David. So let's look at Isaiah 22. Turn in your Bibles there. Shebna and Eliakim were two highly influential servants of King Hezekiah, who ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah. By this point um, in the narrative in the Bible, the northern kingdom had already been taken captive and Hezekiah was ruling in the south. He was doing his best to right the wrongs of his father. He was faithfully serving the Lord. He did a lot of good things. And you can find uh, the narrative that goes along with Hezekiah, Shebna, and Eliakim in 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 29, and Isaiah 36. And actually, during Hezekiah's rule, 2 Chronicles says that there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem when Hezekiah restored worship in the temple. But this was a time when kings were aggressively warring to gain territory and power. Atrocities that came along with warfare were common. And before long, the powerful king of Assyria 
moved his forces into the kingdom of Judah to take over the territory. Now remember, these were the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah, living in the promised land. And this land, God had promised to establish, protect, and bless his people in that land. Read Deuteronomy 28. There were incredible blessings for those who were faithful. But as the enemy surrounded Jerusalem and other cities in the kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah and his counselors, Eliakim, Shebna, and others, knew that the little city of Jerusalem had but little power. So they began to strategize and scheme for their defense. The text indicates that they may have actually sent word to Egypt that they would receive protection from the king of Egypt. And then they began to put in place these military defenses. But look at Isaiah 22:7. This is God's response to their reaction when they felt they had no power and they took it upon themselves to defend themselves. This is what God has to say. Isaiah 22, starting in verse 7. He says, Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He, the Lord, has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected water. You broke down houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Verse 15, go to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? Verse 19, I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind him with your sash. I will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. If you read the text, you'll see that in this instance, the Lord rescues Jerusalem from the king of Assyria miraculously, this time. But we don't really know what happens to Shebna and Eliakim. We never see how their relationship and their positions play out according to this prophecy. But what we do know is that these two men, they were real people, take on prophetic representations of two groups of people. The one type of person when he feels weak and powerless, looks to his own wisdom to find an answer, and he turns to the world's popular idea of power to strengthen himself, but he never looks to God. But the other type of person trusts entirely in the Lord to provide, protect, and preserve, and he obeys him faithfully even when he lacks power. And it's this servant Eliakim that represents one person in particular who would fulfill this, namely Jesus Christ. And Eliakim, the man during Hezekiah's rule, would have been granted authority to allow or deny access into the throne of the king. 
He had the key to the house of David. Some people argue that this was actually a literal key that opened the large bar that locked the palace doors. But the one who would fulfill this prophetic representation would have even greater authority. The one who would fulfill this type would possess ultimate authority to grant or deny access to the eternal throne room of God. And Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, that's me. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am who I say I am, and I am the one who holds the key, not only to release sinners from death and from hell, but to bring them into the eternal throne room of my God. When I open the door, no one can shut it, and when I shut it, no one can open it. Jesus is the all-powerful, undefeatable king. What an opening statement. With that, we turn to the church in Philadelphia. We don't know much about the church of Philadelphia from the text, or even from history. But what we do know is that this city was designed to be the gateway for the eastward advancement of Greek culture. We also know that the strategic location upon which it was built happened to be on top of a major fault line. Even though the volcanic soil here was very prosperous for growing grapes and exporting wine, it caused devastating earthquakes, one in particular in 17 AD. And that earthquake left long-lasting effects upon the city. The people were forced to rebuild everything. Their infrastructure was destroyed. Their homes were gone. They had to rebuild everything. And over time, the people became accustomed to this feeling of insecurity as tremors and aftershocks would hit. They would evacuate, and they became used to this feeling of insecurity. The city even went through several name changes to honor the numerous emperors who funded their disaster relief efforts. Despite their best efforts, the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor had little power to defend itself against natural disasters. And as a result, the people felt powerless. But the church within the city had even more reason to feel insecure and powerless. While faced with the common dangers of natural disaster like everybody else, they also faced the unique situations, which we've already talked about, of living among hostile pagans and Jews. They would have faced the same challenges in that mainstream immorality and idolatry were the expected norm in society. And if you didn't fit the mold, nobody wanted to hear what you had to say. The doors to the synagogue and the doors to public influence were closed to the Christians of Philadelphia. What do you do when your home, your life, everything is constantly under the threat, not only of physical destruction, but also you've been marginalized into an obscure corner of society with no power and no influence. What do you do when you're in that situation? Well, it's to a remnant of people in that very situation that Jesus, the holy and true one who opens and no one shuts, declares in verse 8, 
I know your works, and behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Let me ask you, for real, when you're faced with a situation where you have no power, what do you do? How have you responded? How should you respond as a Christian in that moment when your back is against the wall, you have no one to turn to, you don't know what to do, you don't have power? The answer is, you keep the word of Christ and you don't deny his name. This is the cause of Christ's commendation for the church of Philadelphia. They kept the word of Christ. They never denied his name. They didn't compromise. They didn't cut corners. They didn't forsake him. They didn't withhold his name. In other words, by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, by receiving that word of Christ and clinging to it, and then witnessing to it and representing him and obeying him in those moments where they were powerless, they represented him faithfully. This is also the condition for you and me to partake in the promises that we see here in the letter. My point number two is that you must faithfully represent Christ. As I said already, to be powerless in the kingdom of God is to be usable if and only if your lack of power results in faithful, enduring witness for Christ that flows from dependence upon his power and authority. Notice the four different ways that this condition is stated in the letter. In verse 8, he says, You have kept my word and not denied my name. In verse 10, he says, Because you've kept my word, I will. Verse 11, he says, Hold fast what you have, so that. In verse 12, he says, The one who conquers, I will make. Because the church in Philadelphia faithfully trusted in Jesus and kept his word, he placed before them an open door that no one could shut. All the other doors were closed, but the king took notice of their works. He took notice of their faithfulness. You know, there's much discussion about what this term, the open door, actually means. But we've got to recognize that first and foremost, the open door is the justification of sinners, which grants them access to the presence of God. The key of David, the key of death, the key of Hades are held by Jesus. And this makes it clear that the open door he's talking about, above all else, is the gateway for sinners out of death into eternal life with God. What a consolation that is especially to the one who is weak and powerless, that the all-powerful king would hold open the door for his faithful ones. But the condition is you've got to trust in him. You've got to keep that word, that word of the gospel that was brought, the word of who Christ is, that knowledge of him. You've got to cling to it and trust in it and depend on him. You've got to cast yourself on his mercy, depend on his power and authority, and that's the key to the key. Keep his word and don't deny his name. Faithfully represent Christ. But I do believe there's also a second meaning to the phrase, the open door. 
And that brings us to my last point, point number three, that Jesus uses you to accomplish his plan. What we see in verses 9 and 10 and 12 are three massive eschatological promises, or if you're a little more charismatic, promises of destiny. Same thing. These promises envision the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan of redemption from before the creation of the world. These promises in this letter are the summary of all that's contained in Scripture. They're the trajectory of history, and every human will be eternally affected by their fulfillment. Like it or not, God's promises will come to pass. Believe it or not, God's word will stand. Either you're for him or against him. You will be either with him forever or separated from him forever. But if you represent Christ faithfully, though you lack power, he will use you in the accomplishment and the fulfillment of these promises. His strong arm will bring salvation and judgment through the means of a faithful witness of his people. Let's just look at these three promises. The first one is in verse 9, and the promise is that God's enemies will bow down in reverence before God's people. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The open door is not only access to God's presence through the mediation of Christ between God and man, but it is also an opportunity for his faithful witnesses to lead others to that same glorious redemption. For the Church of Philadelphia, the opportunity to represent Christ faithfully was before the Jewish people who had rejected Christ. Notice how Jesus is grieved by Israel's rejection of him. We see it again and again through Revelation. He's grieved by that. His own people had rejected him. His own family had cast him aside. Yet he still has a view of their redemption despite that. I also want to point out the powerful irony of this promise in verse 9. From Genesis 12 all through the Old Testament, God repeatedly held out this prophetic promise to the people of Israel that people from around the world, their enemies who had oppressed them, would come before them and bow down in reverence and worship. Let me just read a sampling of Isaiah. He says, The wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, the Sabaeans, men of stature, those are terms of power, they will come to you and be yours. They shall follow you and bow down to you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God. Kings and queens will bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you will bow down at your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord. Jesus takes these ancient promises given to the people of Israel and flips them on their head and applies them to this tiny, powerless Gentile church. 
That is ironic and mind-blowing. Their faithful representation of Christ, their enduring witness in the face of opposition, would be effective and powerful to prove God's love for them before those who had rejected Christ in a way that would lead sinners to repentance. Keep in mind Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 23. He prays that we might become perfectly one so that the world may know that God sent Jesus and that God loves us the way he loves the Son. If you keep the word of Christ and represent him faithfully, he establishes you as a gatekeeper that is responsible to lead others to the open door of salvation. You have an incredible position of authority, and I think way too often we don't even realize the weight of this authority of being a gatekeeper to God's open door. But Jesus said in Matthew 16 and, and Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 that he actually gives a key to his church. We have authority to lead others through that open door. And I don't think we realize how effective we actually can be in that mission. But sadly, even though your witness is effective, even when you're powerless and opposed, your witness is effective to lead others to that open door. Yet, there will still be individuals who reject Christ. And the second promise we see in verse 10 is that God will bring judgment upon those who reject him. Verse 10 says, Because you've kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Even when it feels like your representation of Christ has been rejected and is ineffective, it is still effective because what happens when you declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you represent him and live as him in this dark world, it forces people to a point of decision, either repent or rebel. And even if they rebel, your representation of Christ is effective. It's like receiving a letter from the court that you have to come for trial. They send you a letter, you don't respond. They send you a letter, you don't respond. They send you a letter, they don't respond. You're adding to your guilty sentence when you ignore the calls of the judge. And so when we represent Christ and we're rejected, they're only bringing upon themselves further guilt and condemnation. Yet when we represent him well and they repent, they are brought into the open door of salvation. Your obedience to Christ and your proclamation of the gospel actually demonstrates who on earth is a citizen of heaven and who on earth is an earth dweller, as the text says. This is a technical term that will be repeated through Revelation, that those who reject Christ are earth dwellers. And there is trial coming upon the ones who reject Christ and live for this world. I do want to point out just briefly, and this is like there are so much, so much thought and argument and writing that goes into this. 
But people use this verse as a, a defense for the position that God is going to rapture his people out of the judgment that is coming upon the earth. But I do want to point out, while there's some ambiguity in what exactly the hour of trial means, what we do know is that Jesus calls his people to be a witness through something of that trial on the earth. John 17, 15, Jesus says, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus left us here for a reason, and that's to be a light in the darkness, to proclaim and represent. That's all I'm going to say on that for now. If you have questions on that, we can talk about that at a later time. But the final promise is found in verse 12. And this is the big one. This is our call to worship last week, Revelation 21. This is the big picture, the end of time, the fulfillment of all of God's plan for us is that his eternal presence will rest upon the foundation of his faithful witnesses. Verse 12 says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. This is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan that he would dwell with his people, that he would set all things right, that he would make all things new, and we will live with him forever, heaven and earth being recreated together as one for eternity. The faithful witness who feels powerless now will be established as the pillar. Think about that in the context of a city that had been destroyed by earthquake. God's going to establish you as the pillar, as the foundation of his temple. Never shall he go out of it. Think about that in the context of people who had to evacuate their city and come back and evacuate and rebuild. God's saying, I'm going to establish you and you'll never leave my presence. The faithful witness who is ignored in this world will be given a new name. Upon him, God will write the name of God, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ's own new name. For those who feel ignored and rejected and marginalized, you will have the identity of your God forever. And the faithful witness who is rejected here will be the foundation of God's temple upon which his eternal glory will rest. Picture that. The promise is that his eternal glory would rest among his people and he's using his faithful witnesses to be the foundation upon which he rests. That is powerful. To be powerless in the kingdom of God is to be usable if and only if your lack of power results in faithful, enduring witness for Christ. In the face of opposition, in the face of rejection, in the face of the enemies of this world, those who reject Christ. But it has to come from a dependence upon his power and authority. 
got to keep the word of Christ and depend on him and cling to him. He says, hold fast what you have. I'm coming soon. It's not going to be much longer. You're going to be with me forever. Hold fast. If you represent Christ faithfully, even though you lack power, he will use you in mighty ways to accomplish his purposes, his all-powerful undefeatable, sovereign plan. He wants to use you to accomplish it. Remember Dan said last week, he uses means. He uses his people. But the key, the condition, is that you represent him faithfully. As I close, I just would like you to spend some time thinking about this because I do believe that Mercy Gate Church in many ways is a powerless church in and of ourselves. We're a small church facing massive evil in the world. How have you responded to moments where you lacked power? Have you sought power in your own means? Or have you depended upon the power and authority of Christ to use you for witness in those moments? Oh, there's just so many different situations that I can imagine right now that this speaks to in different ways. So you've got to take the time to do business with the Lord to make this personal and applicable for you. When are you powerless and what do you do in those moments? Because Jesus wants to use you. He wants to bring about his redemptive plan through the witness of his people who bring others to the open door. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I ask for my church family that we would take this message, that it would stir up within us a longing to depend on you completely. Lord, as we saw last week, my prayer is that we wouldn't just keep the word of Christ, but that we would represent him in moments of opposition because you want to use our representation, our witness of you, to bring sinners to repentance. And in those moments when we feel powerless, you're actually bringing effect through us. Your power is working through us. And so, Lord, my prayer is that we would grasp this as a church, that we would really understand what you want to do through us, and that we wouldn't withhold your name, but that we would boldly declare and represent the name of Jesus faithfully. Lord, we thank you for these massive promises. And Lord, I do pray for those hearing this who don't know you, who don't trust in you. Lord, I pray that this promise of judgment for those who rebel would be something that stirs up within them the need to repent. Lord, that they would cast themselves at your feet the ultimate son of Israel, that they would worship you and be reverent to you, recognizing that you are the only God. You have the key to salvation. Lord, I pray for those hearing this who don't know you, that they would trust in you, and that as a church, we would boldly declare that gospel every day, in every situation, 
even if it seems like it's being rejected, Lord. Strengthen us to be your faithful witnesses, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.